And we're talking really fast, and we're going to go to it and talk about all the themes, and we're going to talk about the characters, and we're going to get everything into the episode really fast. Okay, on a score of one to four, what are we going to go to? With a score of one to five, we're going to get a 1.2. Okay, okay, Harry Potter House, here we go. Harry Potter House, here we go. What's the over? All right. We're talking about A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood. Christopher Ishy. On the Spinecrackers podcast, which, welcome back, everybody. We're back, Finally. Yeah. After these coastal elites took their uh, work stoppage vacations, <laughs> and then one of them, uh, and then one of them got COVID. You wish you could. Yeah. Not the COVID part, but you wish you could. Paul, this is your Jordan's flu game. You gotta really deliver here under. Yeah. Under the, the conditions of being sick. So let's see that. Oh, okay. Well, I'll try. I'm <laughs> foggy headed. I don't know if it's gonna work, but I'm try. I'm gonna try. <laughs> So, uh, if you've been following our journey recently, like uh, this is <coughs> our first episode under the auspices of what we're calling Spinecrackers 2.0, which means we're going to be moving a little bit more quickly through the uh, material. Not going to be as many kind of like deep dives into characters, references, uh, witty banter, etc. All of that stuff is going to be um, uh, from now on Patreon exclusive. We are going to do our full two hour, two and a half hour, whatever discussions of, of each book, but we're going to be limiting the uh, publicly released material to, you know, 45 minutes to an hour or, or thereabouts. Um, and this is our first experiment with that formula. So, uh, you know, bear with us or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And for our first uh, book it, under this formula, as Matt already said, we're talking about Christopher Isherwood's, uh, what is it, 64? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, 1964 novel, uh, A Single Man. Um, Isherwood is uh, British. Yep. British author, uh, uh, you know, a gay man. Although I think, you know, we'll talk about the details of how that does or does not work itself into the story. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, what's this book about, boys? Well, this is Paul's This is Paul's responsibility. Oh, yes, true. Paul, your pick, yes. your responsibility. Well, I mean, real quickly, the it's really just like I mean, let's just make everything real quickly. Let's say that before everything we say. Here we go. <laughs> uh, it's just it's about a, a English professor working in Los Angeles in uh, like the early '60s who is recently like single. His partner has died in a car crash. Yeah, and it's basically like a, a life in the day of this lonely English professor. His name is George. Uh, and it's just like a life in the day and it's it's just like going through step by step of how he's thinking how he's feeling the interactions we ha- he has is uh has in the school and with some of his friends and with a student towards the end and yeah it's Both. basically the quick summary nice that was good uh <laughs> so so yeah like like paul said it's a it's a classic sort of um I don't, you know, not to compare it like directly to Ulysses or anything, but it's a it's a day in the life of of this person, right? And he's a, yes. he's a college professor. He's, you know, recently, uh, they they weren't married him and Jim because this was before gay marriage was legal, but they yeah. were, you know, domestic partners or whatever they called them then. And, and th- this is obviously a theme in the book because in the '60s that was still kind of like a that was right on the cusp of when. You know, being gay in America started to at least move towards in the direction of becoming accept- uh, acceptable, I think, right? Which is like an overt theme, too, I would say. Yes. Like mm-hmm. that that transitional period being itself like kind of directly addressed with like references to the years prior, especially when like George and Jim met each other. And George's I was, pretty interesting f- 
just tumultuous feelings about the transition now. Yes. And, and, and by and now, I mean like 62 or whenever this book's supposed to be set. Or Jim, is it 64? I think it's 62. Uh, 62, I think. Okay. Yep. And so Jim was ex-Navy, right? They met when, yeah. when Jim was like at port in California. Uh, and then they started their relationship that way. Yeah. He was a man mm-hmm. in uniform. He was looking good. Yeah. Tight. Yeah. What were your first impressions of the book? Or, I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I, I guess we're just because because we're moving quick now these days. I, I'll, I'll put my cards to the table. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was uh, a really sort of like thoughtful and politically sensitive, without being like a political book. Like I certainly wouldn't call this book a political novel in any kind of traditional sense. But it obviously has political um, implications and and ramifications that are uh, sort of, you know, not even pointed at, but sort of gestured at obliquely by George's sort of internal monologue throughout the text, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like just like more fundamentally, it's like a portrait of loss and grief, right, of how to deal with the the loss of a loved one and it's and it's sort of uh you know flecked with the specificities of a gay man in 1960s you know even liberal sort of california america yeah you see him going through those waves of like the way that grief uh of any kind sort of manifests in your day-to-day life which is in these weird waves where you'll conjure it up through engagement with a particular smell or an object or somebody just, you know, quote unquote triggers you. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I really loved, uh, like sort of how human George felt. It, it was a super quick read for me because it was such a page turner. And like, uh, part of that was just wanting to know, like in a, in a crass way, like what kind of shenanigans is George up to next? But it was obviously like deeply sad and not like, uh, you know, just like a mystery or something. It was just sort of like, how is this man in this state of mind going to deal with his life? Yeah, and 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 I think uh, it also serves as a, you know, a really kind of um, for me as someone who's you know in academia a little bit at least, like the the way academia is portrayed in this book like rings so true to me and there's a there's a passage that i'll read later that 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 really like kind of emphasized that and hit home for me and i think it was just like because ultimately george develops um not a relationship but but some some sort of not even quite sexual but like a relationship feel tension with one of his students, right? Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, um, Kenny. Yeah, and and the way that that plays out through the story, um, like as Matt said, it, it's a book that you are not really expecting to be quite as much of a. a, a it, it draws you in. It's a page turner, like Matt said, in a in a weird way, um, but it's also like very dark and very bleak. And like I, I was reading this. And, you know, you can't see this, obviously, if you're listening to the podcast, but the cover is these sort of like sickly sweet, like pink images of like California living and like surfing and tennis and people with their shirts off and da 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 da. Fucking Pepto-Bismol cover. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, oh, this is this is sort of like a quintessential nice, like little like beach read. But it turns out to be like this deeply existential meditation on loss and sort of like this this key moment in American history about the status of homosexuality and um, just deeply sad. Yeah, I and it's think... like deeply honest. It's like a deeply honest portrayal through the voice of issuer that is just so strong. Like he he's so witty and thought provoking and just like deep. He, he just seems to be just like a very cool seemed to have been a really cool person. I think his himself comes through a lot in this. In this book, too, I, I think he actually taught at a college in California for a short time, too. I, so I'm not sure how much of this is autobiographical, but it it felt to me that, like, just his personality was coming through very strongly. 
but even even in the ways of like like deep or whatever but also he's what is so charming and like real about the book is like he'll do like weird like funny stuff too like george has to answer the phone and he didn't wipe his ass and yeah, just, yeah. And then he ends up talking on the phone for like a little too long. With his poop in his butthole. With his poop in his butthole, he's yeah. like he can he can feel the cold glueiness starting. He was just like a fifty yeah. year old man. He's just like I'm disgusting. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it reminded me a little bit of of you know, I mean, okay. And any longtime listeners of the podcast will know that one of my bailiwicks is is hating on Michelle Hualbeck. And um, one, of, one of Welbeck's, uh, you know, th- themes of one of his own bailiwicks is the <laughs> aging process, right? Right. And, and I felt like Isherwood did such a, such a, I mean, frankly, just a better job than anything I've read of Welbeck's of dealing with that. It's funnier. It's more subtle. It's more true, uh, I think. Well, the, the humor, it's like bittersweet. It's not just bitter. It's like right. bittersweet yeah, with exactly. some caca humor in there mixed right. in. Yeah. A little poo-poo humor. I did like <laughs> the structure, too. Like, the structure, I thought, was set up really well. Like, Jim's death is mentioned pretty quickly early on. So it kind of sets this dark tone for the rest of the book. But it kind of, like, right after it's introduced, it kind of becomes funny, like, really funny. And you kind of, like, forget about the death. But then, you know, just kind of, like, he interweaves the the silliness the wittiness with like really deep dark passages about aging and loss and death just kind of brilliantly and maybe that's one reason why it was such a page turner for me it was just like reading about life you know to be stupid and crude or whatever but it was just like being alive well 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 speaking of structure i think it's also worth mentioning that the book is is sort of bookended by these um, passages that are written from this kind of like omniscient God perspective about just just George's physical body and like yeah. what's happening to him when he sort of wakes up and the way his, you know, lungs start working differently and his brain kind of kicks on when he's waking up in the morning. And then, you know, he goes through his day and then at the end of the day, uh, he kind of passes out drunk in his bed. And there's this like deeply like existential uh, uh, ending where it's sort of just like there's this there's this omniscient narrator who's just kind of like, let's imagine for a moment that uh, this body, you know, that there was a clot in this body's one of this body's veins somewhere and it dislodged and it like stopped his heart in the middle of his sleep. And, it, it, you know, it's it, we, we can maybe read some of it later, but it, structurally it's interesting that it's bookended by those two sort of uh you know omniscient objective kind of like very physical visceral bodily descriptions of of George well it's 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 like consciousness it's like consciousness coming online uh and then consciousness leaving you know the the bookends of a day normally yes uh and just the the I guess the kind of fragile nature of that and how lucky you are even though it's in some ways unbearable to uh to have that. Yeah. And there's passages that talk about um George like kind of desiring and almost feeling sillier and sillier throughout his life. I think he's talking to Kenny when they're having their interaction towards the end. And that was actually it was like really refreshing to in such a dark book George still has this this stance of just being like, I'm actually feeling like things matter less, but in a good way. And I'm sillier. It's, so it's, I, it's sort of like if you, if there was a, a wholesome joker, it's like wholesomely joker. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is yeah. like what I feel like I am actually trying to achieve. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even call this book dark. I mean, it's about loss, I guess, but I don't know if I would actually characterize it as dark. Mm. Uh, yeah. Maybe you're right maybe realistic um an attempt to to sort of like capture something honestly yeah yeah no i i think you're probably right dark is probably a little bit reductive it's 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 a subtle portrayal of the sort of like various modalities of loss right because like again like and that ranges from like jokerfied humor to just like an appreciation of life like paul was saying to 
you know, this, uh, what I think is one of the, you know, funniest scenes in the book where he's driving to work on the highway in LA sort of toward the beginning. And he's just like, just so just viscerally angry and just like fantasizing about killing people in like brutal ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That tracks with now. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but, 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 but again, I think like, like you said, Matt, it's, it's, it's honest and it, it, it runs the gamut in all of the honesty because like one of the things, like when I was reading that scene early on, when he's on the highway driving to work and he's in traffic and he's just fantasizing about killing people, <laughs> um, <laughs> Which obviously, like you know, it, it, you know, it's important to flag that that scene is a, is also about the attitudes of America at the time towards homosexuality, and it's a, it's about sort of the um, hypocrisy that 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 George as a character saw in the sort of like liberal California culture, who still, um, including his neighbors, uh, like w- refused to to name homosexuality as like a, a thing that existed in the world. Right. Right. Like one of the one of the sort of um, ongoing, you know, things in the book is his neighbors kind of just like talking about Jim as like his friend or his roommate, like this classic sort of like and glossing over, you know. And George will refer to Jim as his roommate, even to like his friends, it seems, you know. Yes. He might even do that with Charlie. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, I think I think very I think the key is. That, that that cemented that that was something that was very intentional was when he finally is talking to Kenny. What a scene. They, what a scene. They they come on the precipice of just saying gay, you know, like yeah. I'm a gay man. And then uh but that's never done. And I think like that is indeed like uh supposed to sit heavy with you and like loom large and kind of almost be like thwarted. You're like, just do it. Yes. Like you as a reader are just like just fucking say it. I don't know if I think Isherwood was out at the time. I mean, like I think I believe so. He'd I'm, been out I'm by the sure. 50s, maybe, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. I did I, get the feeling that the the setting that it takes place in, though, like you know, California in the 60s, it seemed like George found one of the safer areas in the country, though, and one of the more safer jobs to have as a gay man. Definitely, you know, like he, there is oh, a sense yeah. of security oh, yeah. in his life, in his circle, in his neighborhood, at the university that like. You, you get the sense that it, he feels safer there, even though he does still seem like he can't talk about it with people and still has to put a face on in at his job and talking. I mean, that's another great scene, though, is when he's talking when he, in the academic scene, when he's talking about like his interactions with his uh, with his coworkers and the teachers. And <laughs> yeah. I fucking love that. It was so funny. Well, I, I, I think one of the things that is so remarkable about the book is that, you know, it's cynically from you know the perspective of 2022 it's probably easy to be like (coughs) okay yeah a book about you know um you know the struggle of being gay in the 60s like it 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 might sort of you might worry that it would fail to kind of like hit in the same way because we are all so so kind of like uh not to say that that um you know queer people gay people don't kind of like uh, experience oppression today of course right but it's a it's much more accepted and common than it was, or, or maybe I should say commonly accepted, or you know whatever, right. uh, than it was then. You might worry that like oh it doesn't really it might not hit the same way, right? But I feel like it it the way Isherwood describes it and describes the internal feeling and and again Matt that scene in the end towards the end with Kenny in the kitchen. It's so it retains all of the tension and all of the like subjective emotional kind of like pathos that it would have had in the 60s today, which I thought was like just remarkable. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, There's just the same amount of uh, even even if you even if you're I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to like speak out of turn on this kind of thing. You know what I mean? But like, it does seem like there's still that core to it, even with people now who are out and like, who are, you know, relatively safer than they were back then, et cetera. How like the culture has kind of accepted this, that, that core of it where you're still not really like fully feeling like yourself or like, I, I imagine that has to be still just in the air, like static, 
And yeah, like, I think that what's coming, still in com- the air- coming out is still like not easy for a lot of people, right? Like between family yeah. and you know friends, and depending on like which where you are geographically and all that shit. I think one thing that certainly seems to not have changed very much is when someone is in a situation where they think the other person could also be gay. There's still that fear yes. solely because you don't know how their reaction's going to go down once that person does find out or suspects. It's not like a straight thing where, you know, someone's trying to pick up someone of the opposite <laughs> sex. Yeah. And there's there ends up being no, like, fear or hate that could come from that. But it's still around today. It was just like you can suddenly be faced with someone who's like incredibly homophobic and it's scary for the gay person i'm sure yes and i I think maybe we should set the scene a little bit for that 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 ending scene because um i i think it's really helpful in kind of a loot like uh uh, you know buttressing some of the points we're making you know it's so at the end kenny uh who's one of the other major characters in the book is one of george's students at the at the university and George kind of has this, uh, you know, not flirtatious, but he, you know, like he's hot, you know, like whatever. Right. And, and, uh, but, but George assumes that he's straight because he has a girlfriend or George assumes that he has a girlfriend. And by the end of the book, George returns to the bar, uh, which is sort of like a implied to be a gay bar, I think. Right. Or is it just, yeah, that, that was how I read it. Mm. Um, where he first met Jim and Kenny, the student is there and they strike up a conversation and Kenny sort of says, Oh, well I came here tonight because some of the other students told me that you hang out here sometimes. And, um, and George is already lit. George is already wasted. Cause because yeah, he hung he was, out he with Charlotte with Charlie. before. <laughs> yeah. We, we, yeah. yeah. And, and we need to talk about Charlie a lot uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in a minute. Um, she was my favorite too. Oh, uh, yeah. fantastic character. Um, but so, you know, George and Kenny are there and they have this conversation and they wind up going skinny dipping in the ocean because the bar is right on the beach and they go down and, and obviously George is like, you know, drunk and very kind of like emotional and sexually charged and, um, and funny and very funny. <laughs> and, and they wind He's up going jolly, back. happy man. Exactly. And they wind up going back to George's house and that's kind of, you know, Kenny showers and he's kind of in a towel sitting in the kitchen. And this is where that conversation transpires that we've been referring to where George is kind of in this drunken haze, like, like, like just like trying so hard to get it out, but also resisting himself with equal strength. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. You'd, you'd think it would be the moment where you'd get the like really dramatic sleeping with a student. And that's, you know what I was expecting and was pleased to find that that wasn't kind of what happens. Yeah. Like, yeah. That or I was, I was also kind of expecting, like, I thought it might've been like the kind of re- the reverse of the catcher in the rye scene. Um, you know what I'm talking about? The one that he's fucked the... every teen where he's in, he's in like a, a apartment with one of his teachers and he thinks that his teacher is coming on to him and he freaks out and runs out. And I was reading this as right. sort of like, the reverse of that like you're getting the teacher's perspective and i i kept expecting something big to blow up and kenny was going to be like what do you what do you actually think i'm doing here like i'm not gay like you're crazy and i thought george was gonna get fired and all this shit but it turns into more of just like a wholesome moment and george kind of just ends up wanting him to stay and sleep on this like guest couch that he sets up sometimes like it wasn't it wasn't anything more than that and then he sort of suggests that Kenny and his girlfriend could come fuck there whenever they want. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it, you know, you're so right, Paul, that it's like, it's, it's one of those, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of like a, you know, like a, a, like a dance music track where it's like building and building and building and building and building. And then like all of the bros are like, you know, dude, where's the drop? Like, where's the fucking, <laughs> where's the fucking mm-hmm. drop, dude? Hit me with the heavy bass. And it just never comes. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? And it, and that's like, it's so satisfying in its own kind of like teasing way. I don't know if you've even, you even get a satisfactorily conclusive answer about Kenny's orientation. Like, no, he, he really could not be, you know what I mean? Like th- that was also mm-hmm. like th- balanced and threaded so perfectly where you're just like, 
it's like this mixture of like, of course, yes, Kenny's gay and like the professor needs to get a nut off. And like, this is like so liberating and like follow your, do it, man. And then also at the same time, like, this is a trap. Like this will ruin your life and your career and you are just in a, in a bad spot and you should not act on these impulses. It was such a wonderful mixture of those two things. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Charlie a bit. The other character that we've mentioned, who's one of the big figures in the book, uh, Charlie is um, it, like George, an expat from. She's is a she limey? Is she Irish or is she no, she's, British? She, she's British, um, and she's kind of like the uh, you know his you know. Female friend, like like in in contemporary vulgar parlance, she's kind of like the hag, you know. She's like the yes. the the friend of the gay guy who's a woman, and they get together and and dish and whatever. And him and and George and Jim used to go over to her house, and they would drink and hang out and kind of like you know go back and forth. Um, and she go- had a gossiping. husband too, and she had a husband left. who so left that's one her. of their and she so they were friends child. before. She yes. has an estranged uh, son, but they're kind of yeah. sharing their loneliness now and. Yes. She's kind of constantly trying to get George to hang out with her. And she, well, she, I, she's, she, I think she's excited in a way now by the fact of George having this loss in his life as well. Yes. And so, like, mm-hmm. they fucking love and hate each other. And this is a relationship that I've seen happen to people. It, I, I've, I've not, 100%. Not in, not in this way, but like, I've been there. You know what I mean? Like, where it's just like two people kind of like. They no longer even really like each other, but they share some sort of uh, some sort of grief and some sort of like binary star <laughs> circling mm-hmm. into a black hole kind of uh, relationship with one another. And so they're like emotional vampires to each other, but they also deeply care about each other, which, uh, yeah. And th- yeah, but there's also something like even though there is that like hatred <laughs> that, that he has <laughs> towards her that she doesn't share, there is some sort of wholesomeness about it, like you said. There's like a niceness to their connection and it seemed to me that um they they might have like had a better friendship when they were both in couples or something and now they're kind of like thrust together more and it's kind of more awkward now there's a there's a sort of like um uh, inertia to their friendship where it seemed like at least the way I read it, that that Jim was kind of the catalyst yes. for, their, for their friendship. And he was like mm-hmm. the sort of connective tissue between Charlie and, and George. And he's gone now, but that sort of inertial relationship is still happening. And they, they not that they want to escape it per se, but they can't even if they wanted to, because it's now fused in this kind of like, like weird off kilter way by Jim's death. Yeah. And, and uh, Jim is in most of the book sort of characterized as somebody who is this glue that holds things together. And this person who just like in his, you know, just day to day demeanor was the more positive force, right? The more like outgoing, like bringing people in kind of force whereas George was always the like he's the introspective fucking literature professor like he and it, and his and he's now allowed to be that without the guardrails or the help of Jim to like pull him out of certain states of mind and that's also something you get from the entire story is the fact that like moments that George has over the course of the day like you get the sense that they wouldn't have happened or been as bad were Jim there to like pluck him out of them like for example which is very sad like like towards the beginning george is talking about how he's kind of become like not a monster but he's kind of like the old crouchy guy of neighborhood and he's a weirdo in the house yeah (laughs) the kids like kind of run up to him and like say shit to him (laughs) but he kind of like feeds off the energy and likes it too yeah but yeah you do get the sense that jim might have like pulled him out of that like chasing kids down the street with a with a rake type deal Yeah, but to get back to Charlie, maybe like their their relationship throughout the day is pretty funny because I think early on Charlie calls him and he's just like, "I have plans. I can't. I'm not hanging out with you. I'm sorry." Right. And he, he makes tried, something up. He tries to avoid her. Yeah. yeah. And then he can at like, hear that she wants him to. I don't know. But he has her. a moment of like peak loneliness just for an instant and thinks, 
I need to like see somebody and I'm going to just call Charlie. Yes. Which is, I thought was really just a clever writing because that happens with those types of people too, I would say. A friendship like that. Like you don't want to see them for so much of your time and then you'll have one moment of just like, I'm lonely. Paul, I'm right here, just, dude. You're but you know what I mean? It's fun. When you're your worst self and you're weak and you're just worn down emotionally, that's when you finally come crawling to this asshole that you know. <laughs> Not what I meant at all. I, um, I do have people in mind in my life that are like that. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I, I want to actually read a passage um, getting back to the point about sort of George's kind of status in the neighborhood and his relationship with his neighbors because I feel like it was so... Uh, I mean, to me, this was just such a pitch perfect description of like the American consciousness, not only at that time, but like in a way that's translatable to like today in a lot of ways. Um, so this is on 26, if, if you all have the, uh, uh, who published this? The FSG edition. Vizikul Kapi. So, so this is him talking about his neighbors. Farrar, and, Strauss, and, and Giroux. Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, <laughs> so, so this is him sort of talking about his neighbors and their kind of like daily routines and their own kind of neuroses about his homosexuality and stuff. And two, three hours later, after the cocktails and the guffaws, the quite astonishingly dirty stories, the more or less concealed pinching of other wives' fannies, the steaks and the pie, while the girls, as Mrs. Strunk and the rest, will continue to call themselves and each other if they live to be 90 are washing up you will hear mr <laughs> you will hear mr strunk and his fellow husbands laughing and talking on the porch drinks in hand with thickened speech their business problems are forgotten now and they are proud and glad for even the least among them is is a co-owner of the american utopia the kingdom of the good life upon the earth crudely aped by the russians hated by the chinese who are nonetheless ready to purge and starve themselves for generations in the hopeless hope of inheriting it Oh, yes, indeed, Mr. Strunk and Mr. Garfine are proud of their kingdom. But why then are their voices like the voices of boys calling to each other as they explore a dark, unknown cave growing ever louder and louder, bolder and bolder? Do they know that they are afraid? No, but they are very afraid. Awesome. <laughs> like awesome. It just gives me goosebumps because it's such a like incisive. And, and in the specific case, it's about you know the sort of boogeyman there is homosexuality in a way but it's also about american insecurity in general and sort of like the feeling of being american right and like we 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 are all sort of yeah we're fucking americans and we own this shit and we fucking rule ass but there's such a you know you know implicitly like masculine insecurity in that sort of assertion in the first place and i just thought it was like ugh and the mid 60s it's again you know this is even before he would know but like that was going to that was going to falter in a big way like soon and i just love when people like yes. pick up on that i love seeing so many confirmations of that like you know, in all and, these different forms. Just and just that analogy of like the 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 like young boys in this cave yelling yeah. louder and louder and like trying to be more assertive and more assertive in order to compensate for their own fear. Like it was just, and, and, and that coupled with their voices echoing from his neighbor's porch up to his window, like, Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was just fantastic. Um, I mean, he had a lot of passages, I would say overall, just like critiquing America just like so beautifully, but he also praises it. At one point, like on a on a drunken rant, he talks about how like yes. Europe sucks and America rules. <laughs> right. And I didn't totally understand what he was trying to say. It was pretty like drunkenly philosophical, I would say, but wholesome too, and just cool. Like this weird, crazy English guy is just like, I fucking love America. It's awesome here. But yeah, he does critique it, and he critiques he critiques the sprawl well, which I love. Anyone critiquing the American sprawl. I hate it. Shout out Henry Miller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> L.A. uniquely yeah. representative, too, of that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think he does that well in, like, the, where you, the passage he's talking about driving to work. He's talking about, like, highways and shit. I was like, yes. But he also talks about how much up. he fucking loves driving. Yeah, which is yeah. so American. 
Yes. Right. It's because, like one of the most American individualist things to have a car and own it and be able well, to drive and, wherever and, you want to go. And, and <laughs> going fast, a, me. <laughs> going fast, Paul Walker. And that's a <laughs> Paul Driver. <laughs> Paul Driver. <laughs> he ain't walking nowhere, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly right, hey. Paul. Paul, like his whole you know thing with the driving is that he, you know, is 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 uh, able or maybe not able, but he, just naturally his self kind of separates into two the one that's sort of controlling the wheel and the one that's like thinking and, and fantasizing and, and, you know, engaged in like, you know, thought. And there's this disjunction between those two where he's like shocked. Uh, you know, I think in the scene where he's driving, he comes back and he's like, wow, that must've been a record for me driving just like without thinking about it. Right. Like, <laughs> I like, love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he wasn't looking at the road, wasn't paying attention to anything, just kind of on autopilot. And, uh, you know, I think we, I mean, I can certainly relate to that having, you know, lived in Atlanta for a while, just like sitting in traffic, driving, just like doing literally anything else with my brain than like looking at the car ahead of me, which I should be doing. Yeah. But also I, I love the, uh, the notion because he characterizes two different, alternate sort of backseat driver like lizard brain entities right so like one of them's the guy who drives that's not him really and then the other one is the guy who talks to people that he doesn't care about at yeah. all <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And which so, i and love he was that like was talking like about the how they're fusing yeah. fusing oh go ahead paul no you can go ahead i was gonna say that are you talking about when he's at work too though because he yes he talks about yeah guy. okay yeah yeah which i like think is knows still the responses now. of course 100 percent, 100 percent. oh yeah maybe even well, worse I, now because you have to have even more of a persona and watch more what you say i'm sorry that was stupid what? <laughs> is that a jordan peterson cancel culture yeah joke? yes yes yeah. <laughs> yo he kind of has a cancel culture moment uh, he does in 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 his uh, class when though, he when he's teaching. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. Because maybe, maybe we should save that for the Patreon. But yeah, that's an interesting scene. Well, okay. I, yeah, I won't get into it, but like, uh, I do think like one of the lar- larger and longer segments in the book is him at school, and he he gives a lecture, but you're still like kind of in his head. So yes, and he sort of. Um, He's giving a lecture by rote, and then he latches on to something that he feels strongly about. But and again, what I like about this is there's a lot of these these kind of diatribes and monologue, inner monologues, and outer monologues and stuff. Um, but you get the sense that it's not even really what George thinks, or like were he to be in a, a better state of mind, things he would say very differently. Um, because you're still, you know, at the end of the day, dealing with this grieving damaged person who's like pissed and sad at the same time and then right. contrite and depressed uh afterwards and all that kind of stuff so you also have a what in essence is an unreliable narrator uh before you exit his subjectivity and go back to this like god perspective which gabe said you know bookends the the novel I yeah, he's, he's sort ahead. of personifying like the like what he thinks a professor should be mad about or maybe is that kind of accurate like he's he's just trying to like amp himself up and argue against, uh, for something i don't know i, I think i know what you mean <laughs> i i uh I, I just i just wanted to read another section just so we can get some more of the actual text in here about yeah about when he's driving and thinking about like paul was saying sort of critiquing the urban sprawl and sort of like you know, he's he's already talking about uh, issues that 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 are still affecting most major American cities, which is basically, you know, uh, like um, gentrification, sprawl, like building like cookie cutter apartment buildings. And he's already like like so mad about it, you know, in, in the early 60s. Um, and so he's talking about he's driving by this uh, uh, new building that's being built, this apartment building. It would be amusing, George thinks, to sneak into that apartment building at night just before the tenants moved in and spray all the walls of all the rooms with a specially prepared odorant, which would be <laughs> oh, which yeah. would be scarcely noticeable at first, but which would gradually grow in strength until it reeked like rotting corpses. They would try to get rid of it with every deodorant known to science, but in vain. And when they had finally, in desperation, ripped out the plaster and woodwork 
they would find that the girders themselves were stinking. They would abandon the place as the Khmers did Angkor, but its stink would grow and grow until you, until you could smell it clear up the coast to Malibu. So at last, the entire structure would have to be taken apart by workers in gas masks and ground to powder and dumped far out in the ocean. Or perhaps it would be more practical to discover a kind of virus which would eat away whatever it is that makes metal hard. The advantage that this would have over the odorin would be that only a single injection in one spot would be necessary, for the virus would then eat through all the metal in the building. And then, when everybody had moved in, and while a big housewarming party was in progress, the whole thing would sag and subside into a limp, tangled heap like spaghetti. <laughs> That's just funny. <laughs> it's just funny. Well, spaghetti as a word makes you laugh, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, I know. It's a funny word. Paschetti, dude. Yeah. yeah. But again, right, like, it's this, it's this, you know, like, visceral, like, inexpressible anger about sprawl and America and the sort of, like, you know, in this particular context, the hypocrisy of the people that he knows are going to be paying for and living in those apartments that are sort of, like, we're progressive or whatever, but we won't say gay or we won't, like, acknowledge that anybody is gay. Yeah, but and but just uh, there's also a tinge too uh, to temper that rage because he gets sad about the rage after afterwards. Yes, sometimes, sometimes po- post rage clarity. <laughs> uh, where where you know he he recognizes again in a sort of the contemporary parlance he recognizes his privilege essentially. Uh, yes, relative to other people like him and. Uh, almost feels this sense of like shame uh, about how he's capable to just sort of go on as he does kind of in secret. Um, and he kind of hates himself for not you know, being explicit about who he is truly and uh, why he's able to do that and sort of all the like, yeah, socio-political reasons for, for that being true for him. Yes. Well, uh, because we're on a short time frame, we're going to maybe move into our closing segments here now. Um, How long have we been going? This is, uh, we're at 40, 42 minutes, roughly. Okay, yeah, let's do Dang, it. I did um, want to get into um, a little bit more of just like, we haven't really touched on the loneliness aspect, I would say, too much. Maybe we got to save it for the patient. Well, so if you're interested in that, so we're going to talk about loneliness. We're going to talk about the... Um, <laughs> Dude, we got loneliness. We're going to talk about the... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I also have a lot more I want to talk about. I want to talk about his descriptions, Isherwood's descriptions of the house that George lives in. Yeah. That, I, that I think are like super like pregnant and really interesting. His descriptions of academic life. I want to talk more about Charlie. Um, that's all going to be in the Patreon um, but, uh, for now, let's talk about, uh, Harry Potter. Do it faster. You're a reader, Harry. Yeah. Glitchcore Harry Potter theme. Glitchcore. We, we failed you all. We don't have words. We don't have the Scrabble words. We have to, I, we have to cop to that. We did promise that and we did not do it. And that's our bad. And we're fucking losers and we suck. And I'm that's, sorry. That segment will return though. But it will be around. Mm-hmm. So for new listeners of the show, for every, for every book we read, we uh, categorize all of the main characters into Harry Potter houses. And uh, that's what we're going to do now. <laughs> Unironically, we all love Harry Potter and we're going to do it. And the idea is, you know, we literally just read another book. The classic critique of Harry Potter fans is read books, like read another book. And we just did. So shut the fuck up. Yeah. yeah so now who, one. yeah, who's in Slytherin? Yeah, we can say it. Exactly. So <laughs> let, let's start with, um, I think there's probably only like three characters that we get enough information about to, to house sorting, yes. sorting wise. Kenny, Charlotte, and George himself. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about. I think it's pretty easy. All right. I actually think this is really hard. I think it's hard, actually. I'm with Paul. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Kenny, the student that George brings to his house. All right. All right, Mr. It's Easy. Go ahead, Moral. Yeah, Moral. Or is he frozen? Oh, he might be frozen. All right, Paul, you got time. an idea? I mean, I do have an idea, but I, I, I think it's hard because you're getting the clout of. Possibly Kenny, but definitely George being under the cover of not being completely brave. 
So because he can't like totally be himself, but you, right. you have to give him credit for not being able to. And Kenny too, potentially, but we don't kind of don't know enough about Kenny. But He's, I'm just gonna say, I feel I feel like Kenny. Uh, I feel like Kenny gets it. Like maybe that's just me. But I have, I, yeah. I don't know. Well, I do too. I think kind of it's like he's the new generation of potential. Um, do you want to pause it? Yeah. yeah. Hold on. All right. We'll be right back, folks. All right, folks. We're back. Uh, My computer crashed entirely. It crashed. Shit the bed. Just absolutely pooped his pants. Yeah. It just happens. You got to deal with it. You want to hear a funny story that should be Patreon only, but here's a little taste. Okay. Ooh. My dog today, uh, he's getting old, and I feel like he's losing control of his asshole. Yeah. And uh, he, like, I-, I wasn't in the bed at the time, but my wife was in bed watching some TV, like, chilling, because oh, no. we we're, we're off on Fridays. And he started pooping, and, and, and he, he got up and was like, and then he pooped on the floor in, like, a little trail of tears, like, all yes. the way out, like, towards the door. <laughs> Because he just can't control his fucking sphincter anymore because he's old. And we cleaned it up, everything. She gets back in bed, piece of poop in bed, and she sat right on it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Fuck. So, so, so he literally shit the bed. Wow. Yeah. There's few things worse than bed poop. It's, I can't think of much. It's a nightmare. I've, I haven't had the pleasure yet, but we'll see. <laughs> All right, Paul. So you were. Uh, 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 I was going back and forth, but talking if Kenny to was us a Gryffindor. About, yeah, what house Kenny would would fall into? Uh, I I I'm gonna say, for the interest of time, that Kenny is a strong Hufflepuff. Strong Hufflepuff. Yeah, I think he. Yeah, I think that he's he he he's doing his thing. He's not like in, incredibly just like backing away from his feelings at all. But he's not, like, forthrightly going after it either, like, completely. I think he's in the mid... I, th- I don't know. Well, Kenny, right Kenny's... Sweet spot. Kenny's got the biggest question so, mark over him because it just depends on where it is he is coming from. Because, like I, right. I mentioned before, and I, we've all been hinting at, like, you could go one of a couple ways with him and, like, where he's at. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'll just jump in and say that I, I basically fully agree with Paul. I think, like, my read on Kenny as a character is that he, like, basically, like, fully gets what's happening, like, more or less. Uh, maybe not maybe not fully, but, like, he's kind of in on it. Like, he understands it. And kind of like Matt said earlier, there's a version of this book where the Kenny character is like, Ew, gross, dude. Like, I'm not gay. And, like, runs out of the house. You know what I mean? And Kenny doesn't do that. He, like, chills. And I think he even, like, uh, puts George to bed and, like, tucks him in and shit before he, like, leaves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and to me, that's very, like, Hufflepuff. It's very, like, emotionally sensitive, like, 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 uh, able to connect with people and kind of, like, read the situation. And I feel like Kenny does that, like, to a T. So to me, that's Hufflepuff. And he's, uh, Paul mentioned this when we were off. Uh, I think he's kind of like weirdly loyal to his girlfriend in a way also, which is a minor kind of Hufflepuff point. I'm not convinced that that's his girlfriend. And I'm not, con- I, 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 I would put him as maybe a Ravenclaw. Mm. I, I feel mm. like he was um, very cognizant of what was going on. And at the very least he was by, and he was just like, just seeing how things went he was putting himself in literally like a social experiment in his mind where him and his girlfriend were like you know he's not fully dedicated to this he hasn't explored this side of himself he had a notion from taking class and he'd been observing george for a long time sort of as like a, a specimen and like gauged his almost i would say maybe even exploitively like his emotional status Ooh, and like decided to like Dark meet up like so calculated to be at that bar like that bar is deep lore you know what i mean for for george and true. it's like what the fuck was he doing there true wow i don't know i think that's a little too conniving well that but that's actually, kenny to well, be like kind but, of a scientist putting himself in like a like a but hold on but not that pod. heartless but Wait, still but, like but but hold on though because i think matt does have a point here about the bar because kenny the the whole setup for why kenny is at the bar is that him and his girlfriend were going to have sex and they couldn't do it at either of their houses. And so he picks a specific hotel 
that is in the part of town where George's bar is at that he knows he can walk to when the, you know, he doesn't, for what, I forget, they have, they have a fight. Him and his girlfriend have a fight. I forget exactly what about. But, so he does kind of like put himself in a position to be able to like walk to the bar where he thinks George might be and then be like, oh, look at me, the innocent student. I have no way to get home. I had a fight with my girlfriend. He also, for like a whatever, 19, 20-year-old, has a pretty is pretty able to just shrug off his girlfriend and not wanting to have sex to go True. be at that bar. So He's not just, really affected by it at all. Yeah. Ooh. I'm going Ravenclaw, borderline Slytherin. Dark Ravenclaw? Okay. Whoa. All okay. right. All right, let's talk about Charlie. Charlotte's Hufflepuff, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. She is just bound up in the sop-headed loyalties that she's collected over the years, to, in, independent of how anyone treats her. Yeah, she's in she's in that in that section of Hufflepuff that is unfortunately like the the weakling section, the weak-minded person that gen- generally goes into Hufflepuff. I would say that she's a little bit in that vein. She just seems like she at any moment she could absolutely fall apart. Oh, definitely. Well, that's true. Yeah, I think, you know, the whole scene with her and George where she's kind of like um uh begging him to kind of like uh tell tell her again, like almost like a child. Like tell me the story, daddy, about like your childhood home and like the inn that you went to in jo- with George or with Jim back in England. Right. And and tell me about how cute it was and she's got like her head in his lap. Like it is very kind of like a nostalgic kind of like soft Hufflepuff vibes. And even her son and then her, especially her ex-husband like still kind of waiting for them to get back at her, yes. get back to her and like uh you know still kind of holding out that maybe they'll reestablish a relationship with her, you know. True. Um, I think Hufflepuff. Soft. All right. Soft behavior. The man himself, George. (laughs) The big man. Geo. Uh, I'm going with Ravenclaw. Okay. Why? He's, I mean, crudely, he's a professor, right? So he's a man of, of the mind. True. Uh, of the of intellect uh but at the same time you know he's he's not slithering he's not really looking to like advance his position or, or in some ways you know um complement his megalomania he's he's just often disinterestedly looking at his life and even his his sort of uh method of grieving is very observational and like yeah, clinic, no, no takey. Yeah. yeah, right. So yeah, I think I agree. I think I would. I would just. It, it's it's a little uh, obvious. Just the college professor, Ravenclaw, intellect, whatever. But I think what Matt said is is justifies that uh, designation pretty well. I think you're right. I, I was I was borderline like Slytherin a little bit because even even though he's not like after his career now, but he's also 58 and. You have to assume that at one point he was ambitious enough to like pursue this job and get this prestige prestigious job. True. So I mean, just because he isn't like ambitious now doesn't mean he could have been earlier. But I think you're right. Like the clinical nature and like the way he's he's looking at his life is kind of from a perspective that does seem a little scientific or note taking, like what you said. His so almost even claw too. His like, I think the giveaway a bit is his uh his takedowns of people that he knows like you know i i find myself guilty of this to a degree like uh right you're you're almost like an anthropologist in your own life which right. can be a problem you know where you're like dude are you calling us stupid <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just saying i'm watching you and I'm <laughs> i feel like jane goodall yeah exactly <laughs> Ape life. Yeah, I'm a monkey. Ape life. All right. Uh, so the final segment for the show, we give the book a, a an overall score out of five with uh, infinite variability with respect to uh, how we can slice that up. Uh, yes. The, the decimal points can uh, repeat forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dib's not first. Oh, wait. 
Wait, whose pick was this? Paul? It's not Paul, Ryan, so I got to go last. Fuck. My, uh, all right, whatever. My instinctive score, <laughs> I want to say I read this all in one sitting on an airplane, uh, which is both a testament to how good the book is and also it's been a while now. Do you think that affected in, your score, the reading it uh, on it, like the setting? Probably. I mean, probably. I, I have to like factor in everything, you know, I, I think... It's like talking about how old you were when you read a book or something. It's For like, sure. You know, your context context matters. Uh, however, yes, let's see. Um, probably, I, I really like this book a lot, too. I, I kind of agree with what we were talking about before with uh, just, the, the, yeah, the way it's a page turner without being genre fiction and the way it is both, the way it's pretty tragic comic and it's... Uh, depiction of this person's life and grieving and everything uh, feels very felt just felt very real to me um, so I'm going to go ahead and give it a 3.67 oh my god nice uh, what <clears throat> nothing what Paul you want to say what's just next have to wait for my score I'm sorry yeah I, I, uh, you don't have to wait I'm, I'm, you know, where, where I'm at with it is, uh, you know, again, similarly contextually to Matt, you know, I have a, uh, if, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I am a sucker for depictions of academic life. Um, just a- absolute, like, you know, drooling, like eyes glaze over, like I love it. <laughs> yeah. And uh the I toes I, were curling. Yeah, in the shoes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I had that experience with this book. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that when we uh, uh sign off and go into the Patreon segment because I have some passages that I want to read. But I felt like for me, part of the the truth of this book and the and, and the realness of this book lied in the way that Isherwood described the sort of emotional vagaries of being an academic, both the sort of highs and the lows and the, you know, um, difficulties that, that that sort of uh, line of work presents interpersonally, politically, you know, et cetera. And, and those parts of the book really resonated with me. Um, I, 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 you know, as we've already said, I think the book was just so subtly political without being political and all of those things. And so, uh, you know, for me, it, it's like a 4.56. I, I, I think this book Ooh. is like, like absolute fire. And um, I, I think Isherwood is like overlooked in a way that that's bizarre to me. Like I, I've never heard anybody talk about Isherwood as a, as an author and um, I want to read more of him after this book. So for that reason, uh, because the standard for this show is the five, the full five, no, no uh, 5.0 is like a life changing thing. And for me, this was like in the realm of that because it, it, it brought an author to me that I had never heard of, had never read and had never heard anybody talk about. And after reading this book, it made me wonder why. Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit higher with my score as well. I really really enjoyed this book. Um, I'm uh, I'm just fascinated with being lonely because I'm lonely. Listeners out there, no, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I, I just think that issue was so like connected with me, like not kidding at all. <laughs> He's not kidding. In a, <laughs> just a very human level, and his writing was just so like human to me, but also very like I just loved how funny he was how witty he was but also the interjections of like just really strange weirdness at the beginning and at the end like the the cabs we were talking about kind of like he showed his ability as a writer to like think more abstractly kind of love that opening yeah um but i i don't know i i it's admirable to go through so much human emotion in this in a in a short book that only depicts one day and it's it's you know Maybe I just like a, a good, solid inner monologue, too. But I, it just seemed like it touched on so many different things that, like, I'm fascinated with, that I find funny or interesting. Um, 
so uh, yeah i just like i couldn't really put it down it, i'm gonna have to give it like uh 4.7 damn nice it's one of those books where i'm gonna read it once i get married and divorced and i'm single again <laughs> and i'm gonna love it just as much yeah i Listen, think i'm this it may you may you guys maybe change my mind <laughs> I think I discounted how voraciously I read it. <laughs> you make me go to you make me go three point eight. Yeah, buddy, okay. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, three point eight. I also think uh, we should talk about the title more when we uh, come back for the Patreon segment because I think there's a lot there. Oh yeah, there's so much more to talk about. So, yeah. if you guys liked this, you're gonna love sliding over into the page and uh, what we do over there. <laughs> exactly. There's gonna be a whole hour plus more of fucking content. Uh, just us unleashed, dude, unleashed. Yeah. It, so, it, 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 yeah. Wow, be sure to like and subscribe. Yep. Minimum. Minimum, and uh, yeah, the Patreon, etc. Pay us uh, money, and if you're into it, maximum. As Matt said, there's a lot more to hear. Uh, over on the Patreon, and uh, if you don't, that's fine. Also, thanks for listening. Good night to all our low T. That's low tier, as in zero dollar <laughs> 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 listeners. We'll be talking more for longer. <laughs> <laughs>